0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit JDPower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com.
1: Okay, you guys, so in auspicious moments of uh, rational security history, today is our 300th episode. 300.
2: Wow. We're so- what anniversary is that? Like the the bone China or
1: it's the anniversary where you get well-oiled muscular Spartans to come to your house, obviously. Yes.
3: <laughs> but I have a question. And I'm
1: wondering where they all are. I mean, I've been here 300 times. I, I can't <laughs> believe you all let this anniversary pass without getting me my gift.
3: But what what are the chances that this is actually the 300th episode and that there have been no counting errors along the way?
0: No, I trust Jen Patia Howell implicitly on this question. She says it's our 300th episode.
2: Jen's like like the, the atomic time clock. Like She yeah. is Precise. the universal standard of counting.
3: So even if there were an error, then it's by definition 300? It's by mm-hmm. definition mm-hmm.
2: 300.
3: Definition. definition of 300 is when Jen counts to 300.
2: And, and this is it, guys. We finally we worked out all the kinks. It's going great. We've got, <laughs> we've got our format. The tech is mastered. Totally. It's no issues.
1: Jen did not get me Michael Fossbender, but you know, she got us 300 <laughs> But Jen,
2: you can get
0: me Michael Fossbender.
1: Don't do it. No, don't. I'll, f- I'll fight you for him. <laughs> I've, I've, I've never <laughs> he about can about fight him. his ball if it's 300 <laughs> Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the not guilty but sort of guilty edition. I'm Shane Harris, very innocent, unlike the former president. Guilty, guilty guilty-ish. Is that the impeachment verdict? Guilty-ish.
3: you've gone from talking about getting well-oiled Spartans to being totally innocent. He
0: is, he's totally
3: innocent. He's pure as
2: the driven snow.
3: Very short period of time.
1: Listen, I contain multitudes, Ben, okay? The podcast (laughs) is really, it's a very flexible format. Speaking of flexible form, no, no, oh, yeah. <laughs> Speaking of flexible oh. formats, boy, oh, boy, we're gonna need a special. There's no E rating for this one, baby. It's a different kind. <laughs>
0: this time. is the X rated rat. <laughs> it's more of an
1: NC seventeen podcast.
0: Okay, all right. I oh
1: my! Leave. I am here in my in my Spartan studio. As a matter of fact, it's not really Spartan. Actually, it's like quite equipped. Uh In the jungles with my good friends Ben Withers, Tamara Coffin Wittis and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody.
3: Hi. Hey, spicy Shane.
1: <laughs> we are we are here in Washington. It is cold, but we have electricity. Thank goodness. That's a nice thing. Thank uh, goodness. And, I'm going
3: to that over. Yeah. Oh, no. We're
0: going to express sympathy to us. Yes. My
2: God.
1: Indeed. No, it's terrifying. It really is. Uh We're actually going to talk about that on the podcast. This week, but first up, the Senate acquits Donald Trump in his second impeachment trial. Uh, Rolling blackouts in the aforementioned Texas offer a glimpse of climate insecurity to come. And the Pentagon reportedly delayed promoting two female generals to four-star commands over fears of President Trump's reaction. Let us start with the the big news of the week. Uh, The deed is done. The impeachment trial concluded... On Saturday, there was a brief moment where we thought that we might be seeing witnesses and a fight over witnesses. Ben, I thought of you, since you were holding out the witness card, that this was going to be some sort of sticking point in the process. It was this very strange kind of moment we'll talk about a little bit. Um, the outcome, of course, uh, not remotely surprising. The president was not acquitted by two-thirds of the Senate. Therefore, he is a judge to be not guilty ish. Um, Seven Republicans in all joining Democrats. A surprise in there, I think, with Richard Burr of North Carolina, who is not running again. We can talk maybe about the statement that he put out. But Ben, let me start with you. So at the end of this process, we've closed the books on this unique chapter. How are you feeling about it? Did the impeachment accomplish a lot? Very little. Uh, Where are you on the glass half full, half empty continuum?
3: So one of the things about the glass half full analogy is it assumes the size of the glass is a constant, you know, and if you keep using a smaller and smaller glass, it can be half full the whole time and you still have less water. And that's kind of how I feel about the impeachment process. Like it used to be that we said, well, it would be a big deal if he were impeached because, you know, he'd be removed. And so the idea of the impeachment power was to get him out of office. And then last year we were like, nah, actually it's not really means that it means, you know, that we'll have a trial and then, you know, we don't even really have a trial because the Republicans won't call witnesses. And so like impeachment means less and less and less. And now all it means is we don't vote to bar him from office in the future Right. And so in that context, I kind of resist looking at it as a glass half full, glass half empty thing. It's a shrinking glass kind of thing. We used to think impeachment was a very substantial risk for presidents and a a deterrent of presidential misbehavior. It clearly will not be that in the future. Trump has shown that it can be, you know, resisted with mere party discipline. And, you know, I think the managers, the House managers, did a very good job in presenting a case. I am still hung up on the fact that the Senate just decided it didn't feel like doing the whole trial part of the responsibility to try all impeachments. And I don't think there's a lot to celebrate here. I do think it was effective in creating you know, in telling a certain story. But that's actually not the function of the impeachment process. And the function of the impeachment process is to protect democracy by removing and barring from further office people who actively threaten it. And it did not serve either of those functions, either of the two times that it was used. And so I I have to say, I don't think it's a glass half full or half empty situation. I think it's just a emperor has no clothes situation, honestly. Tammy.
0: So I I basically agree with your argument, Ben, that impeachment failed to do what it is intended to do. It failed to fulfill its function of protecting the democratic system from abuses by the chief executive. And that therefore means that we need to figure out what we can do instead. Like, do we need to... Revamp the way impeachment gets done? Do we need to remove the immunity that the president has from prosecution while he's in office? Like, how do we fix it and fulfill that function? But I don't think it's right to say that the senators just didn't feel like going through the whole thing of a trial because the weakness of impeachment is that it is a political process, it is not a criminal process. It's fundamentally a political judgment and it is subject to political pressures. And in this instance, both Republicans and Democrats, for different reasons, didn't want this trial to go on any longer. They wanted, knowing that the outcome wasn't going to change because of the political balance, they wanted to just get it over with. And I think that's, in the context of what impeachment actually is, that's a defensible judgment. You know, impeachment wasn't going to fulfill its necessary function, even if they had had witnesses. So I I just can't be too upset about that particular dimension of the process.
2: I mean, I, I do tend to think it's unfortunate that they didn't call witnesses, um, in part because I, I was surprised that actual new information came out. And I don't know that that was really what changed people's minds. But sort of the question that uh, sort of sparked the call for witnesses was this issue of, uh, you know, a representative saying she, a Republican representative saying she was willing to testify that Kevin McCarthy, House majority leader, a House minority leader, had told her personally that he had had this phone call with Trump during The assault on the Capitol, in which essentially the president refused to take action. Um, And I I think that's significant um, and sort of significant information that that the public needs to know. Um, And so we'll see whether or not sort of a like the 9 11 type commission for January 6th uh, becomes a vehicle to tell that story. Um, But but I do think actually the trial itself, to the extent that it did exist, did produce new information. In part, I think the most sort of astonishing thing was understanding uh, how close Mitt Romney came to actual physical danger, right? This, this really, really sort of shocking, uh, you know, arresting video of uh, Romney, security footage of Romney rounding a corner, sort of strolling down a hallway with an aide, um, and and Capitol Police Officer Eugene Goodman running at a full sprint towards him, telling him to turn around. I um, mean, you can actually see the mob of insurrectionists sort of rounding the corner in the final clip and realizing what would have happened, what could have happened to Romney had he uh, confronted that mob, right? It became set away, um, video that showed that, that they came really, really close to getting to Mike Pence um, and thinking about the situation of what would have happened if the Secret Service felt compelled to use deadly force to protect the vice president in that situation. Right. We we came so close in so many different moments to real catastrophe. And I, I think that was um, sort of really dramatically and, and vividly presented. And, and I actually do think it it likely accounts for those six you know Republicans who decided to, to sort of do this vote. Um, you know, not just Romney, but but people like Burr, people like Ben Sass, and, and I do think that's significant. Um, I, for me, I think the big question is where do we go from here? And this is something I've sort of been puzzling over. Sort of both Mitch McConnell, John Cornyn, another a number of Republicans who voted against conviction have sort of suggested that Trump should be criminally prosecuted now, right? They've sort of lent support for the notion not just that that's the right venue, but sort of it should happen. And my first instinct in hearing that is, oh, well, that makes it more likely for the Justice Department to feel like if they come upon evidence of what they feel is prosecutable conduct um, that sort of otherwise matches appropriate predicates, this kind of frees them up because it says, hey, look, um, there's bipartisan calls for this investigation. This isn't just sort of a Democratic-driven witch hunt or, or Biden doing this. This is Mitch McConnell saying that it could happen. The more I Think about it though, the more I think actually those calls probably make it less likely for the Justice Department to take action. Because McConnell and Cornyn and others have been, you know, pretty explicit, some of them, um, or at least, you know, pretty clear in what they're hinting to, which is they're saying um, you should prosecute and charge him so that he can't run for re-election. That is not the purpose of the criminal justice system. That is Disqualification under the Constitution, and so they're suggesting this impermissible use of criminal process. And you know, we'll see. um, You know, whenever Attorney General nominee Merrick Garland has this confirmation hearings next week, sort of if he's willing to give any hints here. But I actually think that sort of counterintuitively, those those statements themselves, I think, were sort of the death knell of any hope of of sort of the criminal criminal justice process being used for sort of accountability. And so with that, I sort of I I end up where Ben started, which is just kind of it's hard to be optimistic here. Like all of our systems of of accountability appear to have failed except for elections and that we would take lots of comfort in that, except we learn uh, how close we came to subverting sort of our core electoral process this time and, and what might happen in the future.
1: And fun fact: You can run from jail.
2: <laughs> that is a fun fact, Shane.
3: Eugene Debs did it, of course. Uh, ran for president while in federal prison, and uh, it is also the case that it does not disqualify you. Disqualification emerges from the impeachment process, not it is, from not, not from criminal prosecution.
1: Trump would claim he was the first run to run from prison, but go ahead, Tammy.
0: Well, so Susan's final point, I think. Uh, sends us in the right direction, I believe, in terms of thinking about remedies, which is elections are the ultimate remedy. And that means that, you know, protecting our electoral process from this kind of interference should be the priority, not excluding Donald Trump in and of itself or for its own sake, because someone else could just go do the same thing. And I think it's noteworthy that at the conclusion of this whole process, you know, I think it was a Washington Post poll showed 58% of Americans thought he should be convicted. Guess how many senators voted for conviction? 57 of 100. You know, so if nothing else, there was a public perception that, you know, there was new information, as Susan said, there was a perception created as a result of the trial, and that will affect future elections if Donald Trump should run again, as it should.
1: Can I ask a question, too, on McConnell? Tell me if I'm looking at this the wrong way. Maybe, Susan, you're the one with the law degree here. He gets up. He makes this speech explaining how the president is guilty of the conduct that he was accused of, then proceeds to say, but I won't vote that he's guilty because this is not the proper forum. We can't impeach and try a former president. Well, two notable facts. One, the reason this trial was held after he had left office was, I think, largely because Mitch McConnell delayed it until then. And two, the Senate had already voted that it was appropriate to try Donald Trump after he left office. In fact, Richard Burr in his statement that he put out after his vote said, look, I didn't think it was constitutional to try a president after he left office, but we settled that and the Senate, in his words, created precedent. Then he went on to vote for conviction. I mean, it strikes me this is almost like jury nullification. I mean, the case survived a motion to dismiss effectively. And now a member of the jury is saying, like, yeah, I didn't agree with that. I mean, Mitch McConnell is saying, oh, I disagree with the majority of my colleagues in this body, and I'm just going to disregard their ruling on this, but use it as the hook to hang my hat of acquittal on. That just doesn't make, not only does that not make sense to me, that just seems to be like defiance of the Senate's will.
2: Yeah, look. I think it's the constitutional principle known as complete and total horseshit. Nobody <laughs> believes that that's what Mitch McConnell little-known clause. Nobody believes that. Oh, yes, exactly. You know, of Article Four that you're <laughs> absolutely full of shit, Mitch McConnell clause. Um, you know, lesser known. You know, look, Mitch McConnell did not want to vote to convict. A Republican president. He made a purely political calculation about what would be in his own individual electoral interest and what would be in the electoral interest of his caucus two years from now and four years from now. There was nothing else in Mitch McConnell's mind. Now, that doesn't mean it's an easy decision, because I actually, I think Mitch McConnell for a moment thought, hmm, maybe what's in the best interest of my caucus and of the Republican Party and of Republicans retaking the Senate majority, the thing he really cares about most of all in the world, uh, maybe the best thing is to throw this guy overboard and all jump together. He, he clearly thought about it. He decided that wasn't the path to go down. That was 100% a political, cynical calculation. Like, there's just no one should pretend for a minute otherwise that that wasn't the case um, and then McConnell needed some sort of way to sell it to the public and all of this sort of procedural oh I object to the constitutionality this that and the other thing it like it's just about the messaging there's there's no substance to it there, there's no reason to believe it it's it's nonsense on its on its merits it's nonsense on the on the face it, it doesn't even make sense under sort of the weight of its own logic and I, I don't think we should pay it any I don't even think we should dignify it with sort of legitimate analysis. It's just, it's nonsense.
1: Ben, take us home.
3: Yeah, I just want to say about Mitch McConnell that it is never the case that the import of what he does correlates with the words that come out of his mouth. In this case, I think what happened was he I think, was genuinely enraged by what Trump did. Uh, That was clear the day it happened and in the days that followed. And he also will never be with the minority of his caucus over the majority of the caucus. Never, ever, ever. So 43 Republican senators are going to vote to acquit. Seven are going to vote to convict. He is going to be with the 43 or 42. He'll be the 43rd, not the 8th. That's what he did and then he gave a speech that said how he felt but the import is you know at the end of the day a senator's job is to vote and and to you know be 1% of the decision making apparatus of the senate and that's what he did he he voted that way i don't care what the logic of it is i don't care how he explains it he used his power to acquit donald trump and he then went, gave a speech, and said how he felt. And if people can't reconcile those, that's because they're actually not reconcilable.
1: All right. Uh, speaking of a reconcilable electricity, God, that was a terrible, terrible segue. <laughs> that was
0: that was not I a segue. I can't,
1: I can't reconcile the power transmit. Oh my God. It's just terrible. We shouldn't make light of what's happening actually in the Midwest, or uh, many friends of the podcast are. There are rolling blackouts across Texas and the Midwest this week amid crippling, record-breaking low temperatures. I think in Texas, there were temperature drops 40 degrees below average in some parts of the state. Uh, And if you've spent time in Texas, particularly places like Austin, you know, a lot of places don't get a lot of snow in the winter. And this is these are really kind of, you know, like Arctic temperatures. Obviously it is a Susan unusual, even freakish kind of storm. I don't think Texas actually saw temperatures this this low for the past 35 years. But experts are concerned about what this pretends for the future and its relationship to climate change and climate security. So why are people looking at Texas in this Kind of uh, rare moment, and thinking this isn't going to be so rare in the years to come.
2: Yeah, so I think there's a lot to sort of unpack in the moment, and to unpack from your question. Um, so the first is to sort of note unexpected severe weather is an emergency event, um, and this isn't just sort of a question of sort of are Texans tough, um, right? And can they handle the cold? Um, when so- when something like this happens in a region that is not on an infrastructure level prepared for it, people die. Lots of people die and they die in car accidents. They die because they can't reach emergency services. Um, in these temperatures, people will freeze to death. Um, there's always an uptick in things like carbon monoxide poisoning, people attempting to sort of seek warmth and shelter in unsafe locations. Um, you know, so this is an event in which uh, you know, a lot of people are, are, are uh, unfortunately likely to die or, or be you know in real serious danger. There's a reason why Joe Biden um, uh, sort of even a few days ago immediately declared declared a federal emergency, deployed FEMA, deployed federal resources. The federal government is designed to do that, right? Because we know that every now and then these unexpected events will occur either in terms of the magnitude and severity or because it's going to happen in a place that's not prepared for it. FEMA is designed for this, right? It has this sort of nimble infrastructure where it can surge things to places that don't otherwise have it. You know, you don't need to have generators all the time set up in California, but every now and then you need them, right? And so this ability to sort of move resources around. You know, it it does also underscore the like the need to plan for this in the future, the need to address this as a security consideration in the future. And that has a lot of policy implications. One, who's responsible for responding to emergency on a federal level? DHS. What has DHS been focused on for the past four years? Immigration, border policy, almost exclusively and to the exclusion of all these other things. So one, a big policy question about how much do we want DHS and or other federal agencies to be preparing for this stuff, focusing their capacity on responding to severe weather events that we know are going to increase because of climate change. Two, I think it really does put a spotlight on the, the, the regulatory policy choices, the energy policy choices. You know, it's a moment where lots of people are sort of pointing fingers, the California fires, uh, you know, the Texas blackout, how they're responding to it, you know, blaming the Green New Deal and frozen wind turbines and all these things. I think that the core message is the choices we make now and whether or not we want those choices to be risk informed by the likelihood that these things are going to happen more frequently um, and being willing to just be candid about that and sort of and, and address it head on instead of squabbling about the reality of climate change. It's going to be. It's a security choice that's going to have sort of real consequences for people's lives. You know. So I, I, look, it's a, it's a like I think a hugely significant test for the Biden administration. I think it's a really significant test, it, really for DHS. It's like it's like the the first big emergency that they're going to have to face and, and try and find a way to get through.
1: And we should spend a minute too, just to note that. The energy grid, and I know this only from reporting. I have not reported it on myself, but in Texas, I mean, it's an independent grid. I mean, there's a there's a lot of energy independence there. So to some degree, this is a function of severe weather hitting Texas, obviously. But it is also the case that being independent as it is, it's sort of cut off from any other grids elsewhere in the country where you might be able to divert power. So it raises this sort of larger question, and maybe this is a role for the federal government, of, you know, whether or not there is a federal role in sort of nationalizing the grid. There's all kinds of cybersecurity problems that might come along with that and whatever. But, you know, I know I've heard some people raising that question. And it seems that it's again sort of like puts it back into the court of, you know, federal decision making and federal policy, which is not really how we think about energy distribution in this country, and if we don't think about public health that way in this country either, and we're learning maybe some of the the shortcomings of that approach, um, Tammy.
0: Yeah, well, that's that's sort of where I wanted to go, Shane. So thanks, because I I feel like both on this and on COVID, like Susan is absolutely right that the federal government has a role in in crisis management and crisis response and it should be judged on how it fulfills that role but fundamentally these responsibilities in our federal system are state responsibilities and you know biden was talking in his town hall last night getting a lot of questions about reopening schools the federal government can give health guidelines it can support widespread vaccination but the priorities for you know for reopening schools are state and local decisions they're not federal decisions and I feel like on this too, I think Susan's right to say like, ooh, could this be Biden's Katrina if it's really badly managed? Absolutely. But the, I wonder here whether the failure is really a failure of crisis response or a consequence of climate change, or is what we're seeing in Texas today really the consequence of very poor governance at the state level? we have a barely part-time legislature that spends all its time restricting abortion and trying to pass bathroom bills okay and they barely convene and when they convene that's what they do this intense free market ideology and the way it has shaped the electricity uh, utility in Texas so that basically you know providers can swing prices up and down depending on supply and demand and this bizarre Electric Reliability Council of Texas that is supposed to manage and regulate and guarantee supply despite this Wild West approach to utility provision. And lo and behold, they fell down on the job, which might be an impossible job given that structure and people are without power. I, you know, to me, this all sounds like a governance problem and the governance problem is at the state level.
1: Susan, then Ben.
2: Very quickly to respond to that, Tammy. I, I think Tammy's point is exactly the right framing about it, and also to think about right. These are it's a resource constrained environment, and there are policy choices. And so, after something like this, whether or not state governments and the federal governments respond to okay, now we need to be prepared for the next big snowstorm that's going to hit Texas and divert resources from floods and other types of sort of extreme weather that might occur. Right? You want to make sure people learn the right lessons, and and that is one place in which the federal government I think can reach in and sort of help shape productive risk calculus moving forward.
0: Right. And by the way, hurricane season is coming, right?
2: right. <laughs> and by the way, we rated a lot of those funds for COVID yeah. response and surge relief.
3: Okay, a few thoughts. The first is, it is very nice to have a president who is not threatening the government of Texas with withholding relief And assistance if they do not praise him enough. And I think we should pause here a moment to say that this is a situation that if the prior administration were in office and this were a blue state rather than a red state, you would have a serious hostage situation here. And that is a neat thing about the change in administration that's worth pausing over. Uh, Second, I I do want to take issue with the way Tamara framed this on the same basis, which is I agree that there may be a long-term question to raise about how Texas organizes its grid and some of the state governance questions that she raises. But I do think in an environment immediately after Trump, you know, blamed California for the for, for the fires and suggested that the federal government shouldn't play its traditional role in in relief and assistance because, you know, Gavin Newsom wasn't nice to him and by the way didn't rake the forests right and that like it's a reflex that we should unlearn to in the middle of a crisis like this to blame state governments that we disagree with for policies that legitimately may have contributed to it. I think that way lies uh, a lot of bad point scoring at the expense of state governments. And in this case, I, I yield to few in my distaste for the political choices that Texas has made over the years. That said, I really think there is a time that you know this isn't one of those like school shooting situations where you say now is not the time to have that conversation by which you mean let's get past the situation so that we can then say this is not the time either there's a good there's a good time to have the debate about whether whether Texas should change the way it manages energy i don't think this is the right time for that i worry that it plays into the hands Of people who actually would hold hostage aid to states that they don't approve of their choices for political reasons in other circumstances. And so I just want to be a little bit careful about that. I also, quick last point I do, I very much agree with Susan's original point that we have to think about whether climate change are going to make events like this more likely. I also think you know, extreme weather events like this do happen naturally on a certain cycle. And, you know, there's a possibility that you could say, and I don't know what the best science on this says, but there's a possibility that you could say, hey, of all the extreme weather events that are likely to hit Texas more often, the real risk is floods and storms from the Gulf, not Arctic weather, and so let's not overreact to this. It's an it's a extremely unpleasant and dangerous situation for a short, limited window of time. But, you know, you don't want to overinvest in snow removal in Houston.
2: Yeah, although usually, you know, I I think there are ways to think about responding not to like, you know, weather specific stuff, but having a more resilient energy grid um, is not just a good, you know, sort of response to extreme weather, but to to cyber attacks, to, you know, to to all kinds of concerns. And so, you know, using this moment to learn the lesson of building a more resilient infrastructure and and as a national security priority doing so, I, I do think can be done on a more, you know, sort of general or generic basis.
0: And I'll just note on your point about, you know, when is the right time to ask questions about state level governance. It was Governor Abbott who, you know, announced very quickly the need to have an inquiry into this state regulatory body. It wasn't the federal government dinging him. And that's because I believe it's because he recognizes that there is a governance failure here and he's playing hot potato with the blame and shifting it to the council rather than having people look at his own governance.
1: <clears throat> well, speaking of games of hot potatoes.
2: Oh, there you go. That's a, nice. That worked. You got it back.
1: We call that a recovery. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, file this one under <laughs> stories that we're learning about uh, of the last days of the Trump administration. The New York times uh, is out with a story about uh, how last fall, uh, reading from the story here by Eric Schmidt and Helen Cooper, the Pentagon's most senior leaders agreed that two top generals should be promoted to elite four-star ranks. For then Defense Secretary Mark Esper and General Mark Milley, who was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, the tricky part was that both of the accomplished officers were women. Uh, in 2020 America, under President Trump, the two Pentagon leaders feared that any candidates other than white men for jobs held mostly by white men might run into turmoil Once their nominations got to the White House, the story goes on to talk about how Pentagon officials agreed on this unusual strategy of holding back their recommendations for promotion until after the November elections, betting that if Joe Biden won, he and his aides would be more supportive uh, of promoting these two women to four-star commands than Trump had, who of course had been feuding with Esper and had his own history of, as the Times politely puts it, disparaging women. Tammy, I want to get your thoughts on this story. <clears throat> and also that maybe to start with this comment from Esper, who gave an interview to the Times, when he told them that the officers were chosen from for promotion, quote, because they were the best officers for the jobs, and I didn't want their promotions derailed because someone in the Trump White House saw that I recommended them or thought DOD was playing politics. This was not the case. They were the best qualified. We were doing the right thing. I mean, Boy, for you know, the, the civilian head of the Defense Department in concurrence with the senior military officer to say these are the best officers, and yet here he is saying, and we withheld them because you know why, it is uh it was a pretty stunning revelation. But your your thoughts on this story.
0: Oh man. This story it, it makes me sick to my stomach in a lot of different ways. But So first, before we get to the part that nauseates me, let me just say that Esper's quote there about his logic and the fact that they went ahead and did it this way is itself evidence of what a compromised position Esper was in as secretary of defense and what a no win situation he and the Pentagon leadership, including uniform leadership, were in when they had a political leadership in the White House that was so Gross, that was so uh irresponsible, unethical, prejudiced, you know, etc. And given that, you know, what was the right thing to do in this narrow instance? Maybe the right thing to do in the broader instance was for Esper to say, fuck this and quit and tell everybody why. Okay, so that's that's the first thing. But the part that nauseates me is this. You have two individuals who have devoted their careers to uniform service who have excelled, who are ready for promotion to four-star in a history, in a manner that is evidence of all of the bias, the structural bias in the military that they've overcome to achieve that level. And, you know, so you have their individual fates, and then you have what does it mean to hold back their names so that they can actually, you know, get the ranks that they have achieved and warrant versus putting them forward. Is this overcoming the bias of the Trump administration or is this reinforcing the structural bias of our society and of our military that has held women back for so long? You know, what they did in end running Trump by holding this back, waiting for new administration is really bad for civil military relations. But I feel like the whole thing is nauseating for what it says about gender relations. Like they had another choice. They could have put their names forward and stuck up for them publicly when the White House tried to turn them down. If the White House would have turned them down, that would have been better for defeating structural bias than holding them back so that they could advance under a Biden administration. But you do that at the risk that these two deserving women don't get the promotions they should get and we lose the benefit of their service in the military. So I I feel like it was just a horrific Sophie's choice. Uh, And that is because of Donald Trump, you know, make no mistake. But I don't think you can really claim that the choice they made was a a win against gender bias. I just don't think you can make that claim.
2: Yeah, I completely agree with that. Like the the brave and decent thing to do would have been a willingness to say so publicly at the time and to to go on the record and to sort of stake your reputation and career on it, not to um, hold those women's names back and then months later, um, you know, sort of leak a, a story that makes you look like you know the the very good guy. Um, look, I, I think it speaks to the magnitude of the challenge that Secretary of Defense Austin and sort of new Pentagon leadership have generally across a lot of different fronts. Um, so they've got the issue of gender diversity and, you know, sort of promoting gender diversity at the sort of at the highest levels of, of military leadership, of course, also intimately tied to a crisis of sexual assault within the military. Lots and lots of entrenched, really, really difficult questions, how to deal with people who are have been accused, how to have people report within a chain of command, you know, that, that sort of that that protects them they have uh, you know racial and ethnic diversity uh, issues uh, you know Secretary of Defense ordered sort of a one-day stand back I think they call it to sort of talk about to focus on addressing uh, you know essentially white supremacy within the US military and sort of how to address kind of the the infiltration that was one feature of uh, sort of the, the January 6th insurrection how many of those individuals um, were former military and sort of had ties to the military addressing that. renamed Naming Confederate bases, right? Sort of all of these kind of hot button issues that the the new Pentagon team is going to have to deal with, and and is going to have to deal with in an environment in which. It is not enough to just say you care about it. It is not enough to just raise awareness. Actual, structural, difficult and controversial decisions are going to need to be made. And we're seeing them sort of prepare the ground for that. Um, you know, they've appointed the first um, uh, ever DOD sort of diversity um, uh, senior advisor, uh, Bishop Garrison, um, you know, who's going to come in and uh, and advise on these issues in, in particular. Um, but, but we're still a really long way from, a team that has expressed that they care about these issues to what those solutions are actually going to look like. And, you know, I, I think that we should be, um, we should use these stories as a reason to not let up and sort of really put the pressure on, like, there needs to be real change here. And, and these, these stories that are, are not just about like the bad old days of laying everything at Trump's feet, but instead showing like the legacy rot that is there and, and needs to be immediately, you know, sort of remediated. I think it is
3: worth disentangling a little bit, and they're obviously intertwined to some extent, but they're also distinct to a certain extent, the Trump issues from the structural issues, because there are lots of structural issues that are really big. And then layered on top of them are the, you know, over the last four years have been the Trump pathology issues, which are, you know, their own set of crazy. So I spent, and he's talked about it publicly now. So I I feel a little bit at ease to to do so as well. But you know, I spent a fair bit of time before his retirement talking with Alex Vindman about the possibility that that Trump's hatred for him could prevent all colonels, all lieutenant colonels in the entire military, or at least in the in the army, from from being promoted. Like that was a a bad and unique situation, but it's actually quite similar to this situation where you know, and handled quite differently. By the way, it was a situation where okay. They'd made a decision on the merits and they were just afraid to send it up to the White House because of the way Trump or the people around him would respond. It's really very similar to this situation. And I, I I agree with you that Esper doesn't get a lot of points for burying it and for sort of waiting it out. But I do think there's no good way to handle that situation. And had he decided to go out on a limb and be willing to resign for it, over it, uh, which would have been the honorable thing, I suppose. It also would have destroyed those two women's careers. And, you know, as in fact it did Alex's career. And so I, I, I think it's one thing to uh, expect people to fall on their swords in in defense of certain principles. And I've certainly spent a lot of time on this show advocating that. It's a little bit of another thing to expect People to fall on their swords and drag innocent people with them onto you know the falling on the mark Esper sword, and so I don't know what the right way to handle this was, but i I don't think there was a there's a good solution to this problem as distinct from what I think I completely agree with Susan that there are these underlying structural questions that have nothing to do with Trump that impede diversity in the military, and those can be addressed. I don't know what what the right way to have addressed this situation was.
1: And we should also just note, as we're coming to the end of this, um, the nominations are expected to be sent up. It is expected that the administration will now actually uh, nominate these two generals, who are General Jacqueline D. Van Ovost uh, of the Air Force and General Laura J. Richardson of the Army. And uh, it is expected that, um, yep, they will go forward. Uh, General Venovos to head the Transportation Command, which oversees the global transportation networks for the military, and General Richardson to head Southern Command, which oversees military activities in Latin America. So these are big, big jobs, uh, and they will be nominated for them, and one presumes confirmed, and by all accounts will be quite successful, people hope. So I guess there's a little bit of a happy-ish ending on that. Um, All right, let's move on to object lessons. This
0: is the ambiguity edition.
1: The ambiguity edition. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) Uh, Tammy, you go first for object lessons.
0: Okay, well, as we noted, this is a milestone for rational security. 300 episodes. And so my object, and I'm going to surprise you all, you'd I bet you did not know we had this. My object is our imdb.com listing for the very first Rational Security episode. Whoa. What is Rational Security episode number one, 7 January 2015? It has cast and crew... (laughs) <laughs> cast being none
2: <laughs> <laughs> or,
3: we're the cast but there's no crew like crew was Both.
0: <laughs> no it has cast tomorrow kaufman with his self benjamin with his self <laughs> shane harris self shane
1: harris playing oh. michael flassbender
0: and then <laughs> if you look at the crew <laughs> music department one Sophia (laughs) yeah. So I don't know exactly how this got onto IMDb, but whoever put it there, thank you. It's delightful and happy 300th episode.
3: That is awesome. I had no idea that existed.
1: Do we like qualify for SAG-AFTRA now?
2: Yeah, I want to vote on something. Seriously. Seriously.
1: Donald Trump left the union, so maybe that'll be more of an incentive for you all to join.
2: So now there's an opening.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh God, Ben, you go next.
3: So for those of you who subscribe to Bulwark Plus, the subscription service of the Bulwark magazine and podcast, you have probably heard my friend Sarah Longwell rhapsodizing over the last uh, six months or so about this television show, The French Village, or A A French Village, which is, as she describes it, a lengthy, and by lengthy we mean seven season long, 80 or so episodes, meditation on accountability and complicity. It is a film about, or a show about, a French village under occupation from the Nazis and who collaborates and who doesn't. And Sarah has been rhapsodizing about this show as as the best show about the Trump era without ever being about the Trump era. And I first had zero interest in this because I don't like Nazi comparisons for anything. But the more I have heard her talk about it and the questions that it has raised Uh, the more persuaded I have been that I actually need to watch it. And so my object lesson this week is Un Village Francais, which I am going to start watching. And it's going to be my television project over the next, uh, it's going to take months, I think. And I will report back whether Sarah has been blowing smoke up all of your asses about the French village or whether she is in fact, uh, speaking the word of God into your heads.
1: Wow. This, this is two quite, <laughs> quite, quite extreme review. options. No middle ground.
2: <laughs> yeah. The show's fine. <gasps> or maybe it's no. a mild difference of opinion.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, we're, we're absolutizing these things. Susan.
2: So my object lesson is a microwave we got a new microwave, the like kind of drawer kind that comes out um, and it has all these really fancy features. And for reasons that I don't really understand, it is connected to the internet. And in order to activate all of these fancy features, you have to install an app on your phone. And then you use your phone app in order to like, defrost your turkey or whatever it your is.
3: lessons are coming for your microwaves. Yeah. IoT, the baby. Most,
2: first of all, it took me upwards of 20 minutes of watching YouTube videos to understand how to open it. And two, because <laughs> I have, like, I've, you know, opted to, like, do security on my phone, like, sort of the highest levels of security I can come up with, I can't install and use my microwave app. And so <laughs> thanks to the dumbest installment of the internet of things. I have secured myself against my microwave, <laughs> which now can only do like three things manually. Oh my um, God. And my object lesson is just why people who needs this.
3: But I have a question for you about your object lesson. If I break into your microwave remotely <laughs> and cook a turkey, Distanced.
0: What if there's not a turkey in the microwave? Well,
3: let's say I cook an egg, whatever, whatever you've per- put in the microwave and forgotten is there and I cook it and wreck it for you against your will. Does that violate the CFAA?
2: First of all, I think actually it does violate the CFAA so, yeah. uh, under the definition of uh, of covered devices. Um, that said, like it does, write the stakes of IoT compromise. Like you're gonna, I'm gonna be defrosting like a, a two pound chicken, and you're gonna change it to a ten pound chicken, and then like, <laughs> we'll be in trouble. I don't.
1: And my question is, who just leaves things in a microwave? Ben, don't answer that. <laughs>
0: Just make uh, sure you keep the microwave door closed so no one wanders
1: in. Yeah. Tammy, you might go check what's in your microwave, just to be sure. uh. <laughs> My object lesson uh, is another podcast I want to recommend to listeners, uh, a new-ish podcast. It's called Why Is This Not a Movie? And as the title suggests, each week they take a story that is not a movie and arguably should be. Um, and the episode I want to recommend to folks uh, is one where my friend, good friend Scott Bunn, uh, who runs a great radio Uh, sports radio talk show and podcast out of Asheville, North Carolina. We go way back. Um, Does this great episode with the host, Mike Vago, um, called The Real Third Man. And it is all about the story of Kim Philby. Uh, You know, of course, the legendary British spy turncoat uh, of the Cold War.
0: That has been a movie.
1: So they go into this. It's been like he's inspired characters in a movie. He, I think, is like popped up in movies. But as Scott, who is quite the Philby expert, explains, there's not been like a Ken Philby biopic. And he talks about why he's skeptical of biopics in general in this episode. And I share his skepticism of them and his distaste for them in general. There are very few that work and he talks about why. But he has this absolutely ingenious framing device for how to tell the Kim Philby story that I it never even occurred to me when this, when this starts off, but it's great because it also just this podcast episode just goes into all kinds of bizarre history of Kim Philby that you might not know. I won't give any of it away. Um, even if you do know it, there's some fun surprises and it's a great conversation as well. But yeah, Kim Philby, why is this not a movie? Uh, and I will be going on the podcast in a couple of weeks. Uh, and I won't tell you what we're going to talk. You about.
2: should tell them that rational security should be a movie.
1: Well, apparently it is. We're
3: on IMDb. <laughs> true.
2: Does it true mention
3: that. that Kim Philby used to live down the street from us on 40, at forty nine hundred Nebraska Avenue?
1: Uh, with that level of particularity, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because no one cares but us. <laughs> Wait, what? How? When
3: did he live? You not while not while you lived there? Yeah. No, he was. Okay. Uh, he, he died in the nineties. No, but he uh, he was stationed in Washington for a yeah. while and lived at forty nine hundred Nebraska Avenue, which a fact which showed up in a book that uh, Tammy brought home not too long ago, and uh, I immediately texted my dad, who is a you know a spy history buff, and said, "Guess who used to live at forty nine hundred Nebraska Avenue?" And he immediately texted back. Kim Philby, exclamation <laughs> <laughs> mark. I have to say, I was super impressed. It's a little
2: scary. It means there's something about Ben that is genetic. This is a nature versus nurture situation. Yeah. So true. Ben your dad
1: can be in the movie. He
0: should be a consultant
1: on the movie. There you go. I like this idea. Well, wow, we're gonna take that mm-hmm. under advisement. Uh, Until next week, maybe. But uh, for now, that is it for this week, guys. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find uh, Rational Security merchandise at imdb.com. We have a whole Rational Security store there in conjunction with Paramount. It's awesome. There's like little Sherry Lansing Rational
3: Security commemorative pins.
2: Now a major motion picture, Rational Security. (laughs)
3: When we make the national security movie i I insist that Zach play himself.
1: Oh, I like this I like this very much. I think this is good uh and you, and you would get a crew and a cast credit then that would be like double, yeah, yeah. You can find us on Twitter at R-A-T-L Security. You can find us still on Facebook. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating in review. It really helps us out, and we'll have, help others find the Rational Security movie, too. Our audio engineer this week is the aforementioned Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Mitch McConnell and his queen tribute band, Any Way the Wind Blows.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Nice. You could also call it Nothing Really Matters if you wanted to borrow from the same. Yes,
0: site. I think that's more appropriate. That'd
1: be good. it would be good. I bet, and I bet, Sophia Leanne could jam out uh, to some Bohemian Rhapsody too. Probably better than Mitch McConnell could. On um, behalf of my good friends, Tamara Coffin Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I am Shane Harris. We will talk at you next week. Bye bye.